Welcome to Seven Skills for the Future podcast. My name is Emma Sue Prince, and this podcast is based on the internationally selling book by the same name. This book focuses on seven important skills. They are adaptability, critical thinking, empathy, integrity, being proactive, being optimistic, and being resilient. And this podcast is all about how you can bring these skills into your everyday life so that you are living a life full of happiness, full of purpose, great relationships, doing work that you love, and just really getting the most out of life. Welcome back to Seven Skills for the Future podcast. I'm your host, Emma Sue Prince, and I'm delighted to be continuing with our series of Rising Up, looking for ways to boost energy, build resilience, and get ready for what is coming next, and really learning to live well and productively, sanely, creatively, and even with happiness in the middle of uncertainty. And today's episode, I'm speaking with Chris Tate, all the way from Australia. And Chris is a trader. So he's been working in trading for years and years and years. And our interview, our conversation is all about what he's learned about building resilience. And, you know, when times are tough, when things are really rocky and up and down in the trading world. Um, So it's a really, you know, different take on resilience. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. There are lots of practical tips and ideas that you can bring into your everyday. So have a listen and take some great inspiration and some ideas from my conversation with Chris Tate. Welcome back to Seven Skills for the Future podcast. Really happy to have you with us. And I'm delighted today to be welcoming Chris Tate all the way from Melbourne, Australia, to the podcast today. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So, please, I think it would be great if we could just hear a little bit more about you and what you do. You have such a fascinating background. So I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself, if that's okay. Okay. Uh, The Reader's Digest version is uh, trader by profession, immunologist by training. Uh, I began my professional career uh, as a research immunologist in academia. And that somehow through this tortuous road that life takes us, morphed into being a full-time trader of derivatives markets. It's one of those things, when you look back and try and construct your own narrative, it looks lovely and linear. But when you actually think about it in reality, it is one of those messy roads that most of us take to get to where we end up. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's very true. So such an interesting background. And, you know, I really, when I read about what you do and and, um, your your whole kind of the work you do, I 
I want to link this to resilience and adaptability. And I was thinking maybe we could start with perhaps talking about how your experience, your background links to those two skills. I think one of the, one of the things is perhaps to set a little bit of a, a background tone. And that is that when many people think about trading, they have all sorts of strange ideas that they've generally got from the media. Mm. Uh, they watched Wall Street, the first one in the 1980s with Michael Douglas, and then the second appalling version that came out many decades later, and they get their uh, ideas of what it's like from that, or perhaps younger people get it from social media. Unfortunately, it is a profession that is characterised by being wrong and being wrong repeatedly. In fact, it is the only profession in the world that I can think of, outside of being a politician, uh, where being wrong has no nexus with your success. Uh, to put that into simple terms, uh, for example, as a trader, let's say I have 10 trades in a row. I might get six completely wrong. I mm. might get too moderately right, but I might get too spectacularly right. So there's no nexus between the two. And where people run into trouble is that they equate that sort of the number of times they're right with their own self-worth, their own idea of who they are. Uh, trading is not like any other profession in the world. You have to accept that being wrong is actually the default setting. And for people who come from other backgrounds and into the arena of trading, that, that's immensely confronting because our professional lives are, are based around the fact that we, we can't be wrong. For example, imagine you're an orthopaedic surgeon and you say to your patients, well, look, I've had 10 patients this week, five not so good, two pretty good, one really good, and two are going to the Olympics. When shall we start? <laughs> I, I don't think that would really fly as a marketing pitch for a surgeon. And so incumbent within my profession is this capacity to construct an internal narrative that is comfortable with this notion that you will be wrong. Hmm. Yeah, that I mean, when I when I hear you talking about being wrong, it makes me think about um, perseverance um, uh, and, and, and resilience. Because I know um, it's very common that people will, you know, this is very general now, but you know, people will try things out and fail, and you know, or, or, or you know, get rejected, and they kind of give up after just a very, you know, a very few, very, very few of these. So you were talking about being wrong, you know, six, seven, eight times. Um, but people generally will give up after being wrong or being rejected, you know, just two times, three times, max. Hmm. And I, I think what happens is that because, let me start by saying, resilience, I think, is a skill that can be taught. And I mm -hmm. think the evidence from academia points that to be true. That people can learn skills that enhance the resilience. But at the same time, if it is a skill, therefore there are a continuum of abilities with resilience. Uh, for example, some people might just have sufficient resilience to deal with the fact that their favourite brand of chocolate is no longer being stocked in the supermarket, 
and anything beyond that collapses them. Whereas there <laughs> might be people who, whose resilience enables them to absorb the most awful life shocks and, and simply mm -hmm. carry on. But I also think that incumbent within that is that if resilience is a skill that is taught and it exists on a continuum, then you can move yourself along the continuum uh, by uh, there, not only continued exposure to difficult situations, mm. but by constructing an idea that looks at your response to failure, to making mistakes. And the sort of one of the problems when people I, I've seen when they make mistakes is their image of self takes a knock. It's almost a shattered belief as to who they thought they were as opposed to who they actually are. Mm. And it's and That's a normal response. I think everybody feels that when they fail. Uh, a simple example, there, there are some days when I cannot reverse park my car for the life of me. And I think, well, God, I've been doing this forever. Why can't I do it now? But but it, it's it's annoying, but I don't internalise it as a sense mm. of self. And I don't internalise it as a sense of self because, A, it's inconsequential to me. B, I know I've done it before and been successful. So my narrative around that event is a balanced narrative. It doesn't shatter myself. I, I don't mm. be – I'm not thrown off kilter as, as many people are. And I, I, would, I would imagine when you – speak to people about uh, the notion of building resilience, of perseverance, one of the things you notice is they get knocked off kilter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, quite, and quite quickly as well. And, and that's yeah. the thing. It's, it's almost mm -hmm. a reflexive response mm -hmm. as opposed to a reactive one. And there mm -hmm. seems to be two modes of thinking for humans. Uh, one is this first-order reflexive response where we form an immediate judgment, we have an immediate emotional response. The immediate emotional response also leads to a physiological response, which intriguingly feeds back on and enhances the emotional response. But there is also a, a, a reactive or more reflective approach that some people have. And one of the things I try and do myself and try and engender in others is the notion of the pause. Mm. We too often react and, and allow our anxiety to be a reflexive uh, yeah. endeavor instead of just sitting and pausing. And that, that sit and the pause, from my perspective, it does seem to go some way for controlling you know, these intrusive thoughts or images that people have. And it mm. also breaks that cycle that I've noticed that people think that failure is permanent and that it is all pervasive and all repeating as opposed to simply saying, well, I couldn't reverse park the car today. I'll probably be able yeah. to do 15 minutes. Yeah. So it's not as if I'm condemned to this sort of purgatory of not being able to do something. But yeah. unless, you, yeah. unless you enter the state of that pause and that sit, then it, it's difficult to move beyond that. Mm, mm. 
Yeah, and and what you're saying also about the um, ability to see things as temporary is is very strongly linked to one of the hallmarks of optimism. Mm. Um, and, and it's such a big thing that once you can accept that everything is temporary, even the way that you're feeling about a situation, it gives you such, um, I guess, kind of power to be able to then to then act. So I think it's resilience for me is very strongly linked with optimism. But I also love what you're saying about the pause and 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 reflect because I don't think we do that enough. Mm. But I, I think what you say about power and this sense of loss of power is an immensely important thing. Uh, a, a thing I've noticed is that people when faced with stressful situations feel powerless. It, it's, it's not quite a learned helplessness in the strict sense of it, but they feel they've had their power stripped from them. Mm. And one of the things I try and convince people of is that, and whilst it's a somewhat simplistic, bombastic notion, as long as you're above ground and breathing, you still have power. You still have the power to make decisions. But not only the power to make decisions, the power to deal with the thoughts that are being generated by your sense of powerlessness. And whilst... Your thoughts can't alter the past. We, we don't have a way back machine to undo our past failings. Mm. They do in many ways set the roadmap for what you do in the future. And I think this is why books such as Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning are so powerful because the undercurrent is that they return power to the individual irrespective of the apparent helplessness of the situation. So, Chris, you're talking there about the loss of power that people feel. They feel powerless in a situation. And I want to touch now on, you know, the pandemic that we have all been experiencing and we're kind of, you know, moving into different phases of that. And I want to ask, um, do you feel that if we go through a very adverse situation, a crisis, that that experience makes us more resilient or is it that we actually have to be actively working on building those resilient skills? I, I, I actually think that the event in and of itself doesn't build resilience per se because the, the mere fact that you have survived is not down to your resilience. That's simply down to uh, the luck of the draw with this, this appalling event we've been through. What determines your resilience for future events is, I think, what you do from now on, what narrative you construct to deal with the future that's now unfolding. And one of the problems I think that people face is this notion of what we term recency bias. And this stifles their thinking. But recency bias in very, very simple terms says that, well, today was like yesterday, therefore tomorrow will be like today. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. That tomorrow is completely opaque to us, so we don't know what tomorrow brings. And so it's necessary to start to craft an internal narrative that helps you deal with all the feelings that come out of uh, this event. We were speaking just before we began recording about the notion that here in Australia, we've been very fortunate with the pandemic. To date, we've only had 102 deaths. 
we went into lockdown very, very quickly. Uh, we enacted all sorts of social distancing and control measures. But what that has meant is that because we have a large immigrant population that has a deep connection to many cities in Europe and the UK, a lot of people here, including me, know people who've been deeply affected by the virus. So we have a degree of survivor guilt that's, that's appearing all of a sudden. And I'm quite mm. certain this will appear in the most badly hit areas, such as the UK and throughout some countries in Europe, where people will be somewhat lost because they have survived this terrible event. But simply surviving is not enough. That, that doesn't grant you resilience because I actually think the third and fourth waves of this event will not be uh, related to the virus directly. There will be indirect effects such as problems with mental health, particularly among healthcare workers. And so whilst they've demonstrated extraordinary resilience dealing with the event, post the mm -hmm. event, they're somehow going to have to construct a narrative that builds on what they've seen and done, but also takes into account the desperate need for uh, self-care that everybody has, both during and post these events. And I think one of the things that is missed in the conversation is we get all these wonderful technical conversations from experts and we get advice from government, but very few people stand up and say, okay, what you have to do is take care of yourself. Okay, what does that mean? Well, I need connection. I need my tribe. I need exercise. I need sleep. I, I need some way to uh, get my psyche to navigate what has occurred. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, but 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 how how can people harness those kinds of skills or, or you know implement that whilst they're actually going through yeah the crisis? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a very powerful question and one I've pondered and I think it is quite hard. And I'm not certain I have a perfect answer. I have an answer, and I, I think it is. For me, it's based around uh, two principles. Uh, the first is creating a narrative that sees this as a pivotal event. So it's a fork in the road that in that is paradoxical in that there is a sense of loss but also gain. You, you survive, those around you survived. There is grief that some people didn't survive but gratitude you did. Now that mm. does create problems. And, and creating a new narrative is a difficult thing. But there's a second stage to that, and I think that's a re-articulation of what your principles are. It, it might be that you craft a new set of life principles that say, I, I have a new identity. I'm more altruistic. I'm more involved in my community. I'm more involved in my family. Uh, I, I, I reconnect with a, a world that's been really quite fractured. And I, I think part of the issue is that we may have lost in part the skill for this reconnection with those around us, courtesy of the society we built around electronic communication, social media and the like. So I think it's that two-stage process of you, you create a narrative that acknowledges the events that have occurred but then you set about building a new internal philosophy for the person 
you will be going forward. Mm. I think that's really such a strong message to 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 be giving uh, to our listeners. And um, I want to ask you if somebody is feeling, you know, really stuck. And, and powerless and they're listening to this and they're thinking okay I, I kind of you know I get what you're saying but where do I start how do I begin to construct this new narrative what, what should I be doing what would I, you say I, I think the the first step I think for all of us because one of the things that is missed uh, in all the advice that is given we, we forget sort of the basis of what it is to be human there are many things that humans used to do that were integral to our mental health that we no longer do. We no longer eat together. We generally get Uber Eats and sit in front of Netflix by ourselves. Eating is a social event. Uh, I, I went to a, a yoga retreat last year in Bali and I sat down to eat with 12 people, which I haven't done since my college days. And I was surprised that the meals took three hours because they involved chatting and talking and laughing, telling stories. We no longer sing together. I, I don't know what the situation here in the UK is, but here we have a, a groundswell movement for forming men's choirs, and they found the mm. interesting thing is they're profoundly effective in dealing with mental health issues. They reconnect people. And the third is we no longer dance together. So all the things we used to do that uh, assisted us with our mental health are gone. So the first thing I would suggest that people do is reconnect, find someone to sit and have a meal with. And, and I don't mean uh, sort of ordering Uber Eats and binge watching something. I mean sit down, cook something, have a meal with family and friends mm. and try and recapture these things that made us human and i know in england it's different here in australia but in england you have the culture of the pub <laughs> from, from my perspective as someone who's who's been to pubs in the uk they are center points of the community they, they are parts where people reconnect they meet life partners they tell stories they, they watch football they do all these things and whilst it seems, seems somewhat paradoxical to say the way we recover from a global pandemic is to go to the pub, <laughs> but for people in the UK it probably is because it is such a centre point of the community. Yeah, you, yeah. You see familiar faces. You you reconnect with with what it is to a be a person among other person other people, and what that means to be somewhat normal. And once that happens, once people get back to being connected with others, I think a lot of other things fall into place for us. Mm. And these are very simple things, aren't they? They're very simple things to do. But the, the, the intriguing thing about life is that a lot of life problems can be solved by very, very simple things. Uh, in the UK, much as we do ha have here in Australia, you probably have targeted health initiatives that cost fortunes. I, I mean, uh, we have a public health care network like yours, and it's always struggling for funds, and it's always struggling to generate these 
large healthcare initiatives, but the most valuable ones we have are the low-cost ones that simply say to people, well, get off your ass and go for a walk with somebody. Mm-hmm. It's a simple, direct message, and it doesn't cost anybody anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also just want to say, I mean, the, the, these three things you mentioned, eating together, singing together, dancing together, as you were talking about those, um, an image came into my head of sort of tribes, you know, actual, these are, these are very kind of ancient um, human rituals, aren't they? Eating, singing, dancing. They are. One, one of the things we forget is that humans have evolved over time and part of their evolution has been the response of our brain and its structure, its emotions, the way it behaves in response to dealing with people around us. We are tribal animals. We've always been social. Our survival depended upon being social. And we seem to have forgotten that and push that to one side. And so we built a society that depends upon us being cooperative, but at the same time, it is sought to enable us to isolate ourselves from one another mm-hmm. in one way, shape, or form. And mm-hmm. we forget that we're simply very, very tribal in nature. And this is why one of the things that intrigues me is that when people go to large sporting events, and uh, AFL, Australian Rules Football here, is followed religiously like soccer is in the UK. And uh, our, our large matches will attract upwards of 85, 90,000 people. Yes, they go to watch the game, but they go to watch the game with other people. You mm. get a much better view of the game sitting at home on your 75-inch 4K TV. You see bugger all when you're at the game, really, because you're <laughs> either at ground level or you're in the next postcode and so far away you can't see anything. But you've gone to be with other people. Mm. Uh, Last time I was in London, I went to a show uh, called Motown. And I I go to these things, A, because I like the music, but B, I want to be with 3,500 other people who know all the words like me and who've gone to be there with people like me. is is a tribal connection and it it doesn't matter what we do to try and Mm. break this Mm. connection it it still exists and attempting to break the connection does little more Mm. than cause us grief okay so i want to ask you about two things um in in connection with what you've just been saying One, one is um did we have to lose all of that in order to understand it how important it is so you know we we, many countries have been you know in lockdown for long periods and you know lost those very things lost those that ability to meet in the pub and uh you know be with other people all that connection so did we have to lose it in order to understand its value that's the first thing and the second is that you know um the kinds of events you're talking about, big sporting events and entertainment and music, these things are still not happening and it may be a long time before they happen again. So are we going to suffer as a result um, of that? 
Mm. I, I think with regard to the the first point about losing something to appreciate it, I, I think in part the answer is yes. I think we've always had a creeping suspicion that these things were important, but we've never had a, a pivotal or seismic event in our lifetime that has split families and communities apart so brutally. And I, I was chatting to someone today who's a medico and he hasn't seen his mother for four months simply because she's 92 years old and at risk. And, and that is something he is feeling greatly. And so we, we don't really know until something's taken off us. And with regard to you know, these events coming on stream later and later, then we will in some way, I think, continue to suffer by them not appearing. Uh, here in Australia, the, the conversation for dealing with COVID-19 has moved from things like, you know, bans on international flights, social distancing, isolation, tracking apps to how soon can we get the crowds back at the football? because our AFL season has just recommenced as of last night. They deem it safe to. And the lead item on our news this evening was that by the 1st of July, they might expect to be able to get 10,000 people to a match. It is that important to people that it leads our national news. When, when mm. can we, And I think that's a subconscious thing that's coming through. It's not articulated directly, but I think this... Tribalism, and whilst tribalism is problematic with its negative aspects, in terms of the overall mental health of people with these sorts of events, I think it's immensely important. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think we're, we're kind of... These things are at the forefront of everything at the moment um, in terms of what you're saying about when can we do these things again and uh, when, when, will, when will this happen again? And it's almost like they've become more important than anything else in our lives. Um, mm -hmm. And perhaps, perhaps mm -hmm. we did need, you know, we did need to have this, this huge massive event um, happen to, to help us to realise that. It, it's it's interesting that it's become almost it, here in Australia, it's become almost frantic that they're trying to find a way to do it. it so it, it is obviously triggering something within people, because whilst football is religion here and it's a religion in the UK, it's really not that important here in Australia. It is, you know, thirty six very fit young men kicking an inflated piece of pigskin around. <laughs> in, in, in the grand scheme of things, it, it's not that important. But obviously there is something driving the undercurrent of wanting to get back together that is important to people that they don't quite recognise, but it is something they want. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Chris, I, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. It's been fantastic having you with us. I want to ask you for any kind of final words you'd like to leave our listeners with and also how they can find out more about you and and what you do i think if i was to if i was to leave people with you know a single thought or idea it is that resilience is a skill and like all skills it takes practice you need to actually learn about it it, it, it seems strange that you would have to 
learn about resilience, but you actually do. I, I would put it in the same boat as a language. You would not assume that because you've had a day trip to Berlin that you are skilled or fluent in German. Likewise, if you've had a single life event, let's strip you up a little bit, I wouldn't assume that you are resilient. I would assume that you've got some features or, or factors of it. And therefore, you need to actually build upon that and find people like yourself who, who talk about and deal in courses around resilience and perseverance. And if people want to touch base with me, uh, my website is tradinggame.com.au. Come and visit me on my blog. I talk about all sorts of bizarre, strange things, including 1970s music, which is probably a bit odd for someone who trades for a living. Uh, you can catch <laughs> me on social media and LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook and the like. Uh, just Google my name and you will find me quite easily. Great. Thank you so much. And we'll make sure that all those links are in the show notes for you as well. So thank you, Chris. And um, I look forward to hearing more uh, from you and finding out more about you. And I just want to thank you so much for being with us today. No, thank you very much for the invite. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the Seven Skills for the Future podcast. There are all sorts of things you can do to boost each of the seven skills. If you want more ideas, you can buy the book, Seven Skills for the Future. You can also go online to our website, Unimenta, and join as a member, and you'll be able to access more resources, ideas, and free downloads. If you have a question you want to ask on these podcasts, get in touch through Instagram at Seven Skills for the Future, or on Twitter and Facebook at Unimenta. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your podcast player of choice. Music